Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today, we have a very special episode. We're talking about some new technology that allows paralyzed people to type with their minds. How are you this morning? I'm doing fine, David. How are you this this beautiful Denver morning, uh, nice and sunshiny? I'm doing okay. I got out on a hike yesterday, my first of the season. My legs are sore this morning. (laughs) Well, that's good. I'm sure as the season progresses, I will become a little bit more resilient, you know? Getting back in shape. I walked a lot yesterday, too. I got a lot, about eight miles in. Nice. Yeah, it was a good day. Good day for walking. It'll be a good day today, too. Mm -hmm. So we have a... Short article from Ars Technica describing the work of several scientists from a larger article that they published in Nature. I don't think that we necessarily need to get into the larger article, partly because you have to pay for it. Um, I know that our thing is sort of getting into the weeds of these longer articles, but but I think we're just going to take the headline or the condensed version and sort of discuss some of the ramifications. And in the podcast today, we'll point people towards the larger article if they're interested in the actual science behind it and the methodology and everything. Sounds good. Sounds good. Because there's, uh, reading the article, uh, they have little bits and pieces. There's a lot more depth than what this article is saying. So this is a very good article to introduce the topic. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess, should we jump into the article? Yeah, let's just start with the article. Okay. Um, Neural implant lets paralyzed person type by imagining writing. A paralyzed individual hit 90 characters per minute with 99% accuracy. Oh, I read this wrong both times I read it before today. I was thinking 90 words per minute, which is faster than I can type. 90 characters. 90 characters per minute, which is roughly what? 15, 20 words per minute. I can type faster than that. I'm better than you, science. Uh, no, but it's still amazing. I, I read it as 90 words per minute. I'm like, that's faster than a person could type. Um, but it's actually 90 characters per minute. That's uh-huh. why you, you got to take a look at the, uh, the fine print. Okay, so let's, uh, let's jump into the article. Elon Musk's Neuralink has been making waves on the technology side of neural implants, but it hasn't yet shown how we might actually use implants for now. Demonstrating the promise of implants remains in the hands of the academic community. This week, the academic community provided a rather impressive example of the promise of neural implants. Using an implant, a paralyzed individual managed to type out roughly 90 characters per minute simply by imagining that he was writing those characters out by hand. That is the lead. What do we think (laughs) of it? Uh, Yeah, well... It, it, it sensationalizing a little bit. Uh, it, it, it's true, uh, but imagining, uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, I guess that is right. Uh, but actually, they have to think very specifically about doing a a task. Mm-hmm. You know, they can't just imagine something happening. They have to think about actually writing it. So yes. it's a little bit more than imagining. Mm-hmm. It's actually it's actually uh, thinking thinking the motion of writing. Yes. Uh, reading the article. So let's get into that. Dreaming is doing. Previous attempts at providing typing capabilities to paralyzed people via implants have involved... 
giving subjects a virtual keyboard and letting them maneuver a cursor with their mind. The process is effective but slow, and it requires the user's full attention, as the subject has to track the progress of the cursor and determine when to perform the equivalent of a key press. It also requires the user to spend time to learn how to control the system. But there are other possible routes to getting characters out of the brain and onto the page. Somewhere in our writing thought process, we form the intention of using a specific character, and using an implant to track this intention could potentially, could potentially work. Unfortunately, that process is not especially well understood. Downstream of an intention, however, a decision is transmitted into the motor cortex, where it is translated into actions. Again, there's an intent stage where the motor, motor cortex determines it will form the letter by typing or writing, for example, which is then translated into the specific muscle motions required to perform the action. These processes are much better understood, and they are what the research team targeted for their new work. Specifically, the researchers placed two implants in the premotor cortex of a paralyzed person. This area is thought to be involved in forming the intentions to perform movements. Catching these intentions is much more likely to produce a clear signal than catching the movements themselves, which are likely to be complex. Any movement involves multiple muscles and depend on context, where your hand is relative to the page you're writing on. With the implants in the right place, the researcher asked the participant to imagine writing letters on a page and recorded the neural activity as he did so. So we have uh, back of the envelope methodology described here, correct? Uh, well, back of the, yeah, back of the envelope, because you're going to say it. Uh, we have the bigger picture, the yes. real big picture. Uh, basically, uh, uh, you can say this and go, oh, yeah, sure, you can do that. Uh, but they actually did it. So instead of talking about what could happen and figuring out how to do it, they did it and then backed up and say, here's what we did. Mm -hmm. That's so, pretty much what this is saying. So you think, you know, oh, the computer sees an A and it puts an A on the screen. That's not exactly what's going on. No, no. Um, the computer and gets... And also, oh, go ahead. And also, and also they talk about the, uh, the intent part of the brain and then the motor cortex part of the brain and then that going... So they're beginning to learn, I guess, how to access different parts of the brain because the brain is very complex mm -hmm. uh, and uh, different. The other thing, too, is different parts of the brain will do different things. Uh, and you have one action like we're talking here. Yeah. But but when we're talking, we're looking, we're seeing, we're feeling, we're hearing, we're touching, we're moving our hands. And so all of that is controlled by the brain, which is complex. So they're trying to parse that out, say what part do we capture so that we can actually put communication uh, in that that stream, that 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 railroad stream of cars? Where do we connect to put members on a screen to actually communicate? Mm -hmm. And so that they're 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 uh, interjecting where they need to, so that that will interact with the technology we have to create uh, letters on a screen. Mm -hmm. And and that it's it's it's. Uh, uh, if you think about it, uh, when I was reading this, I was thinking about it, it says, yeah, there is no real new technology here. It's using existing technology and learning how to use it to create a result that heretofore has not been done. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like what Isaac Newton says, we stand on the shoulders of giants that went before us. 
So they're using the technology, but they're using it in a unique way. Yes. So the electrodes in the motor cortex, pre-motor cortex, I believe they said, um, they don't see an A or a B or a C. They get a bunch of electrical data. And by parsing the data with newfangled software and hardware, you can say, oh, the electrical signals that your brain makes when you're trying to write a C are different than when you're trying to write an M. So your brain will officially make slightly different electrical signals. And then we know, oh, that set of signals that your brain is firing off corresponds with the letter M. That's sort of what they did, and they'll talk about that in the next section. Should, yeah. we, should, should we read it? Yeah, and that's a very good description of what they did. But it's not pie-in-the-sky stuff. It's technology that's been around for decades. Yeah. They're, they're just applying it in this area. Yeah, let's read the next section. Okay. What was that again? Altogether, there were roughly 200 electrodes in the participants' pre-motor cortex. Not all of them were informative for letter writing. But those that were, the authors performed... But for those that were, the authors performed a principal component analysis, which identified the features of the neural recordings that differed the most when various letters were imagined, converting these recordings into a two-dimensional plot. It was obvious that the activities seen when writing a single character always clustered together, and physically similar characters, P and B, for example, or H, N, and R, formed clusters near each other. The researchers asked the participant to do punctuation marks like a comma and a question mark and used a greater than sign to indicate a space and a tilde to indicate a period. Overall, the researchers found they could decipher the appropriate character with an accuracy of a bit over 94%, but the system required a relatively slow analysis after the neural data was recorded. To get things working in real time, the researchers trained a recurrent neural network to estimate the probability of a signal corresponding to each letter. Despite working with a relatively small amount of data, only 242 sentences worth of characters, the system worked remarkably well. The lag between the thought and the character appearing on screen was only about half a second, and the participant was able to produce 90 characters per minute, easily topping the previous record for implant-driven topping typing, which was about 25 characters per minute. The raw error rate was only about 5%, and applying a system like typing autocorrect could drop the error rate down to 1%. The tests were all done with prepared sentences. Once the system was validated, however, the researchers asked the participant to type out freeform answers to questions. Here, the speed went down a bit, to 75 characters a minute, and errors went up to 2% after autocorrection, but the system still worked. <laughs> So that's sort of what we were talking about. It creates, you think the electrodes, they're not getting a visual data. They're getting just minute electrical impulses, right? Correct. But the, the thing of it is, which we don't get too much into the weeds here, but what they're doing is they're giving stimuli and then they're measuring how the brain reacts to that. Uh, and those reactions like they're saying for a P or a B or H or N or an R, when they have a P and he thinks of a P, they're looking at how the brain brain reacts to that and how it's different if they ask, if he visualizes an H. Mm -hmm. And so when he sees those differences, they do classification analysis with principal component analysis to just say, oh, well, here is what is 
uh, specific to this input of a P. So you have an input and then you measure how it connects with the P. Mm-hmm. And they say, okay, well, well, the principal compound analysis is is, is a statistical technique that's been around for, for a long time. Uh, they just identify which of those impulses will cluster around that P and which clusters around the N or the R, that kind of thing. And then they say, now that we know that, then they go to the neural networks and say, we'll have a recurrent neural network so that when you have this input, we'll go right to this weighted weighted analysis to come to the weighted output to say that's what the P is. And then that will drive the machine. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. It's very, they're, they're taking the, 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 the statistical technology, the, the artificial technology, the neural technology, and putting it all together and making this happen. And that's, to me, when I see this, I say, there's a lot of smart people in the world and uh, we need each other. This is not just one thing. This is two or three things working together. Yes. And I guess this is what I like when we talk about technology. I think of 1955. Computers were the size of an entire giant room and they performed calculations. Today, the computer that sits in your pocket is millions of times more powerful than those giant computers. If this is what we're doing today, if this is sort of a brain-to-computer interface today, what will a brain-to-computer interface look like in 100 years? Right. Uh, Will there be video games where you strap on some electrodes and before you know it, the graphics are playing out in your own mind? Um, And you you can control the characters with your thoughts? I, I think that we're heading in that direction, 100%. Uh, me too. Uh, again, along those lines, in parallel with that, David, uh, you're absolutely right. Technology is going to create whole different experiences, but so things will change, but people don't change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They'll still want their games. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, all different kind of games, so... Some things change and some things don't change. And this is great use. It's uh, allowing paralyzed people to type. Now, could you allow people... I'm Just think about just advancing this forward. If someone's mute for some reason, um, I guess they never would really have mastered the movements, the muscular movements of speech, right? So you'd have to come at it from a different perspective. You'd have to come at it from a different angle. Right. Well, the the other thing that I thought of when when I I saw this is that they're tapping into the brain motor cortex. And so I'm thinking, well, like you say, people people can sign. You have have different signs. Uh Hello. I feel good. And so you have different different signs of of people and thinking, well, you have universal signs where you can speak different things like like was it how how are you? I, I, I used to know him, but uh, what I'm getting different signs that crosses language barriers. Mm-hmm. And so if you go into the brain and you know that you want to say something. And that's. A hundred years from now, saying that something uh, is an image 
not words, because uh, we think in images and the words then will explain our images that we have in our brain. Once we have those images, those images can be communicated through a universal type of uh, cognitive language. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've thought of that for a long time. And, and uh, th- this is kind of tapping into that, the motor cortex, but if you're backing up into the intention cortex where you have those imaginations uh, and you can identify different languages that's universal, uh, that's I think that's where we're going. Mm-hmm. And so that we can communicate uh, across language barriers. Because language, all language is, is a, a form uh, of communication uh, that is exterior <laughs> uh, to uh, a human. Because... Mm-hmm. People in all languages have the same thoughts. They just express it through language differently. But the language is different. Yeah. The thoughts aren't different. That's what I'm getting at. Um, I think I, it's really interesting. And I mean, we've made inroads on you say something into your phone and it can translate it in real time. And it's not perfect yet, but it's way better than it was 10 years ago, you know? And. That's another thing I think a paralyzed person could type with their brain. It's like, yeah, but they can also do speech to text. That works pretty good these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess this isn't about why don't you just do speech to text? It's like, no, they're just developing new technology. There's no telling where this technology can go. That's right. That's right. And you keep doing this. You keep, And actually, uh, this technology specifically as it as it advances like anything in research as this advances you begin to seeing other things that could be done in parallel or in tangent mm-hmm. uh, so that's why that's why you got to keep having research and so a lot of times basic basic research uh, where is this going to be applied you don't know that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it that's why you should fund basic research and you should fund basic research that's right and we can go back to this and i this is my cynicism alert but Elon Musk is developing, uh, you know, a brain implant that interfaces with computers. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what is going to be the killer app for his Neuralink? It's going to be stuff like this that universities developed with public funding. And they're going to say, oh, Elon Musk is such a genius. And it's like, no, he he's standing on the shoulders of giants. He's commercializing this work that's being done in academia. And he's saying, oh, this is commercially viable. That's commercially viable. Let's let's throw that into a big package. Um, but it's a lot of smart people doing a lot of work that he doesn't do. You know what I mean? Well, there's a whole there's a whole spectrum here of of intelligence. Uh, one is creativity. The other is taking that creativity experimentation and coming up with with relationships. Mm-hmm. And once you have those relationships, then you have some kind of results. And then once you have those results, then you say, well, how can we commercialize this? And when you commercialize this, then how can we monetize it? If we can monetize it, how can we create an industry around it? So there's a whole whole line here. Uh, like I've like I said, when I was in uh, school, I won't name a lot of names, but. I was in school and I was in class and this guy was talking about, uh, well, uh, my professor, which was a great professor and a great education. I'm really, really thankful and appreciative of my education. He was going through gravity and magnetics and, and he was talking about Maxwell's equations and everything. And 
right in the middle of the of the proofs and he was showing us he stopped and we go what's wrong is this guy having a seizure or something <laughs> he stopped he turned around and he says you might think the smart people are the ones who derive who, who derive all this 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 uh mathematics he said but the smart people are the ones who take this and make money with it mm-hmm. you know and i thought oh okay well they're, they're wait a minute Maxwell was smart too. <laughs> Newton was yeah. smart. What's he talking about? And, and then after it got older, I began to realize, wait a minute. There's different types of intelligence. There's different types of applications. And that's what you're saying, David. Mm-hmm. You have the researchers, you have the acad- acad- academic academicians, you have the business people. Who's smarter? They're all smart. We need each other. <laughs> everybody needs everybody. So, so don't discount anyone, what people are doing. Uh, don't believe everything they do, everything they say, but we need, we need everyone. We need mm-hmm. everyone. Maybe that, that was a long story that probably sh- I'm going on a tangent again, but, but I think what you said, I, I agree. And I think you're right on target. Yeah. Well, there's no telling what Neuralink will end up being. It may end up being a flop. It may end up being like Google glass. Do you remember that? No. You know, like glasses that you wore, and they had a little camera. Oh, and they yeah. Were connected to Google at all times, and people yeah. thought they were creepy, and they just went the way of the dodo. I don't think that we're done with that, though. I don't think we're done with augmented reality glasses that have a display in them. You can pull up information via voice. I mean, Google Glass failed, and it's like, it's over. And it's like, I don't know if it's necessarily over. Nothing's over. The the world goes on for a long time. <laughs> Nothing's over, and there there may be something else coming out. Actually, the people in that in that industry, if they were here, if they if they were a guest on our podcast, which we invite guests to come in, we would say, oh no, that that morphed into this, and that, and that transitioned into this, and there are other technologies out there that well, you wouldn't even recognize that it was even similar related to the Google Google glasses, but they are. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, we learned this and we learned, oh, we can apply it this way and this way and this way and this way. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, I didn't I didn't know that. Uh, it, but that's why you keep doing things. Well, I think also, you know, you hear stuff. I remember five years ago, they're saying VR, VR is the next thing. VR is the next thing. And I don't think it was. That doesn't mean that VR is not coming eventually. Facebook has a huge stake in it. Others have a huge stake in it. Windows, uh, Microsoft with their HoloLens, Facebook with Oculus. Um, it just hasn't seen widespread adoption in the consumer market or in the business market. So what did come instead? I think audio came up pretty hard in the last five years. Everyone has an internet-connected device in their living room that they talk to. Alexa, play me this. Alexa, tell me this. Um your voice assistance on your phone. And I think that's more low-hanging fruit. Um, so the things that receive consumer adoption, uh, computer programmers really, really understand how audio can be useful. I think there's this feeling out period of how can virtual reality or augmented reality be useful? And there's going to be fits and starts. You're going to develop stuff that's not really ready for prime time, but it's cool. But it's not going to get a million people to buy it, or 10 million, or how many iPhones are there out there? Hundreds of millions. It's not going to 
be the next iPhone. But the technology and the work you're doing is cool, and it's advancing the the state of the art. Well, yes, along those lines, it, it, look what they used to do this. Uh, principal component analysis. Where did that come from? Did they invent that when they did this? No. It's been around for decades. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, early part of last century, uh, they began deriving, uh, uh, actually formulating principal component and cl- cluster cluster analysis, principal component analysis. Let's look it up. Uh, principal component analysis, cluster analysis. It's a classification technique is all it is. And it's a form. There it is. It's a form. Uh, real. See, that's the other thing, too. You're right. 1901. Yeah. Carl Pearson. And uh, and then it, and then later, it, then people began applying it to different things, but that was based on matrix theory. Matrix theory was before that, and and even before that, you're you're talking about this is classification. Uh, when you get into neural networks, you're talking about estimation, and that estimation is optimization. Optimization was back in the in the 1700s and 1800s. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my point is is that. When who who did that? It was a Newton or someone did optimization way back when, or even least squares optimization. They go, oh well, that's no one's going to use that. You know, you know, you can't do anything with it. Uh, then you came up with opt- with linear programming. No one's going to do that. You know, and they didn't for decades until Danzig said, hey, here's how you can do this with a computer. They didn't have the computer in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. They did in the 1940s, and now we can actually do it. And so, so Danzig came and said, "We can do this." You know, uh, Pearson did the principal components. Did they ever use it? Probably not, because they didn't have the computers back then. Yeah. But then it reemerged when you can do it because it's very computer intensive. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're tapping into to electrodes into the brain. Now that we can do this, this is oh wow, you know that. That's really slow. I can think faster than you can. But then where is that going 50 years from now or yes. 100 years from now? So like like we've been talking about, uh, Pearson develops a statistical technique 120 years ago. And I'm sure that he's been dead forever. He's been dead since 1936. I don't think he had any idea that in the year 2021, scientists would use a technique that he developed to allow people that were paralyzed to type with their minds. <laughs> I, I, when he was developing principal component analysis, I don't think he said to himself, this is a technique that'll be used to help people type with their minds someday. Like, there's no way he saw that coming. But, no but the scientists say, oh, this technique that exists would be good for sort of parsing the data that's coming out of these electrodes and using it to, to put characters on a screen. And yeah, I think... Like back- like back in the back in the seventies, I wrote a paper on uh, same thing, David. I wrote a paper on the mist high resolution technique. I was telling you about it, you know. And so least squares, it's based on least squares analysis, but it's it's looking at a a, a graph, a grid, and uh, uh, it was used in exploration a little bit. But then all of a sudden, uh, about five eight eight years later, uh, anthropologists use it with 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 digs. I go, I mean, think of that, mm-hmm. you know. Because I know what I'm doing, but I don't know what they're doing. Uh, but we can use what each other's doing. Yeah. That's why That's why we need each other. You know, and that's more power to you. Yeah, here, go for it. 
And they were using my technique over there uh, doing archaeological digs. It's the same thing with, with, you know, this thing about isolationism. That that's that that's uh, I can't think of a good word, good phrase. You you're better at the phrases than I am, David. Is that isolationism is the key to undermining uh, uh, creativity and success? Yeah, uh, there's probably a better way to say that. But we need each other. We need to communicate with each other, listen to each other. But I also we need to you, talk. I think you need to publish because the thing is, if Pearson never published. That it may have set this research back a hundred years later. Who knows? I mean, I'm sure they would have come up with. But the but fact that good. it existed in 1901 and it took 120 years for it to be used for this specific reason, like if it hadn't existed until 1941, it might take 20 more years for this technology to exist. Do you know what I mean? I'm sure Carl Pearson knew all about knew all that before 1901. That's just when he published it. Yeah. Like I, I'm sitting on a paper now. I should, I should have published, and and uh, you need to. Sons of Sequoia. When we end every time, David, we say, "Keep on talking and listen more than you talk." Right? Mm-hmm. That's what we say. But talking, there's different ways of talking. You can talk with your mouth. You can talk with your mind. You can talk with writing. You can talk with research. Uh, you can talk with with writing a novel, writing a story, uh, whatever you you can talk with with painting a picture or making a song. All that's communication. All that is 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 extremely valuable today, and we need to embrace and encourage all forms of communication, all forms of talking, uh, like like the talking leaf media. Mm-hmm. Talking leaf is not just words; it's it's expressions, it's communications, and uh, you will need more of it. Anyway, I, I'm getting off. We're getting. Off, I'm getting off topic. Well, I guess. Well, the talking leaves were the characters. Yeah. So it's saying well, yeah, you you take your speech, and you make them into characters, and they're like little leaves. You can send them across the world. That's right. So, it's, talking leaves were the characters in the Cherokee syllabary for people that don't know what we're talking about. Um, yeah, yeah. Thanks for clarifying. Sequoia, thanks. the the famous Cherokee scholar, developed the Cherokee syllabary, and he called the characters the talking leaves, because it would allow you to sort of talk to someone over great distances. He thought it was incredible technology. And the thing is, if you're from a society that doesn't have a written language, and you see that it's a thing, it's like, oh my god, this is amazing. You know, you think about, and and when you think about that, that was what 1830. 1820. Well, he devised it in the 18-teens. Okay. 1815, 1812. And he, he released it in the 1820s. 1821. And 1821. And he, he, he introduced it. There he is. He introduced it. And there's a syllabary over there. Uh, see underneath, underneath his uh-huh. name. Those are some of his. Because David Sequoia was uneducated. He couldn't read and write. He just saw what was happening. He understood what was happening, and he said, we need one of those for our tribe. And you called him a scholar, and he is a scholar, but he's a scholar of his own right. Mm -hmm. And he devised a whole syllabary. There's where he's from, Tuskegee. The whole syllabary, and he devised one for the whole, his whole language. Mm -hmm. Sit down and just create symbols for everything you say. 
in in your culture. Think about that. Yeah. And he stuck with it. It took him years to do it. And finally, when he finally did it, you know, he realized it's going to work. But then he had to head, he have to beta he had to beta test site it right, alpha test site it. So what did he do? He had to find someone to teach it to to see if they could learn it. And who did he pick? He picked his daughter. Through his daughter, he introduced this language to the to the nation. And the nation learned from his daughter. He and his daughter introduced this to, to the to the nation. It's fascinating. But it looks like I'm just reading his Wikipedia. Um, the Cherokee Phoenix was already publishing by the late 20s. So in less than 10 years, not only did he develop the written language, there was a newspaper. And so it's one of the few tribes, Cherokee tribe, our tribe, um, where the history, there is a, a paper of record for everything that happens from the 1820s through the Trail of Tears to all to today, they still publish the Cherokee Phoenix. And I think that's remarkable. And a lot of tribes, the, the injustices that were done to them, the, the brutality, the ethnic cleansing that went on here in this nation, it just sort of got swept under the rug because they didn't have a syllabary. They didn't have a newspaper. So I think that, you know, communication is power. And, I mean, we're a little off topic from typing with your brain, but we're the sons we're of Sequoia. We're allowed to talk about Sequoia. <laughs> we're, ta we're talking about communications. We're talking about uh, about uh, uh, communicating with people. You know, these paralyzed people could communicate. Mm -hmm. So what are you tapping into? You're tapping into human potential is yes. what you're doing. And when you communicate, whether it's with, with neural networks or whether it's uh, w whether it's with these electrodes in the brains or a talking leaf, you're connecting with the creativity and the value and the enormous, enormous reservoir uh, of human of human potential. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with it. As a matter of fact, the book I read uh, about this when I was learning about it, they says when he introduced it to the tribe, to the Cherokee tribe, mm -hmm. they go, oh, and he explained the value of it uh, within. Within a month, they said two to three weeks, over half of the of the people in that nation could read and write his syllabary. That, that's so crazy. It's like it's we're, gonna, we're going to become literate overnight. We're going to do it. They, they saw the value and they go, oh, I see what you mean. We're going to do it. And he did it through his daughter because he saw the value in his daughter. I mean... I mean, he, it would have been a son, but he didn't have a son. He just had a daughter. Mm -hmm. But the point, what I'm getting at is that don't discount any knowledge no matter where it comes from. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at. Um, should we finish our article? <laughs> I guess. I guess so. It's not got, even a prototype. That's uh, the final part. As the researchers themselves put it, this is not yet a complete clinically viable system. To begin with, it is... It has only been used in a single individual. So we have no idea how well it might work for others. The simplified alphabet used here doesn't contain any digits, capital letters, or most forms of punctuation. And the behavior of the implants changes over time, perhaps because of minor shifts relative to the neurons they read or buildup of scar tissue. So the system had to be recalibrated regularly, at least once per week, to maintain a tolerable error rate. 
That said, the system shows a very significant speed boost compared to previous implant-driven systems, and the accuracy is quite good. The system has the potential to be similar to touch typing in that a user doesn't actually have to visually focus on letter production, allowing more normal interactions with the user's surroundings. The letter issue might be solved in part by using an alternate alphabet designed by the researchers, in which all the letters are defined by similar patterns of strokes. There's a lot of potential here. The right. experiments also provide a reminder of the potential of these implants more generally and why companies might start finding the technology worth commercializing. Yeah. Written by John Timmer. Good he job, became Dob. the science editor at Ars Technica in 2007 after spending 15 years doing biology research at places like Berkeley and Cornell. And he's got himself a Twitter. What do you say we follow him? Good job, John. Well said. That I think is a nice. You know what I like about this article? It's short. It's compact. It says important things. It doesn't go into depth, into too much depth or like like we do uh-huh. <laughs> sometimes. Uh, but good job, John. I like I like I like your article. Okay, and I think in the interest of being thorough, we should click through to the Nature.com article where this existed. There, yep. Yeah. And look at these articles. The people that did the research. Francis Willett, Donald T. Avancino, Lee R. Hochberg, Jamie Henderson, and Krishna V. Shinoy. Good job to those people, too. Yes. Kudos. Congratulations. Good job, guys. And Don't stop. For Keep the, going. For the scholarly article, shall I read the abstract real quick? Sure. Abstract of the scholarly article. The scholarly article appeared in the journal Nature. And it had the title, High Performance Brain-to-Text Communication via Handwriting. Abstract. Brain-Computer Interfaces, BCIs, can restore communication to people who have lost the ability to move or speak. So far, a major focus of BCI research has been on restoring gross motor skills, such as reaching and grasping, or point-and-clip typing with the computer cursor. However, rapid sequences of highly dexterous behavior, such as handwriting or touch typing, might enable faster rates of communication. Here, we developed an intracortical BCI that decodes attempted handwriting movements from neural activity in the motor cortex and translates it to text in real time using a recurrent neural network decoding approach. This BCI, our study participant, whose hand was paralyzed from a spinal cord injury, achieved typing speeds of 90 characters per minute with 94.1% raw accuracy online and greater than 99% accuracy offline with a general-purpose autocorrect. To our knowledge, these typing speeds exceed those reported for any other BCI and are comparable to typical smartphone typing speeds of individuals in the age group of our participant, 115 characters per minute. Finally, theoretical considerations explain why temporally complex movements such as handwriting may be fundamentally easier to decode than point-to-point movements. Our results open a new approach for BCIs and demonstrate the feasibility of accurately decoding rapid, dexterous movements years after paralysis. Yeah, see, that's when I was thinking about, oh, go ahead, you're going to... Oh, no, no. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking, yeah, you know, it really, for this, it worked. But for this to work, it really depends on the person. You know, do they, are they thinking correctly? Do they, do they know how to write? Do they, can they respond accurately to what is being given them uh, to write? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of, I thought of, I, I woke up this morning, I thought of Homer Simpson. You say, uh, you'll say, write 
you're talking to Homer Simpson, you say, write, write a P. And in his mind, he thinks of a hot dog. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. this is, that's not going to help. Uh, think of an R and he'll think of a hamburger. You know, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So I'm getting at it really depends on the person. Yeah. And so it, I, I think of uh, uh, early automobiles. Early automobiles are machines that actually worked. But to drive one, you had to know exactly how to do it because it was unforgiving. Mm -hmm. But then technology advanced to where now it's easier to drive. Well, this is tied to this one person who did who they tidied this person, but as technology advances, this can be broadened to all types of individuals. See what, see what I'm trying to get at? Yeah. Yeah, good. Uh, because uh, right now, there's a lot of confound, confounding factors. That doesn't mean you quit. You keep going and, and just keep getting better and better and better at it. And as you, as I said before, as you get better at it, you're going to have tangents of other things that could be done. Um, anyway, this is this is a this is a great research. So I, we're not going to buy it, but the article is available. The whole the scholarly article from eight ninety nine, or you could subscribe to Nature for a year for two hundred bucks. But I thought this was very interesting and really really cool. All the neural data needed to reproduce the f findings in the study are publicly available at this URL. Wow! So that includes all of the neural activity recorded during the handwriting of uh, the attempted handwriting of a thousand sentences for 43,501 characters over 10.7 hours. All the code that implements an offline reproduction of the central findings in this study, which is the high performance neural decoding with a recursive neural network is publicly available at GitHub. That's the awesome thing about scholarship. Wow. Yeah, it is, is. is that it's not locked away. It's, do you want to know what the data was? Here it is. Do you want to know um, what code we did to make this work? How, how we built the recursive neural network? Click on this and you'll see it written in Python, I'd assume, or some sort of programming language. Or, or C or something. Yeah. Well, no, they probably have a spe specific uh, code to write. I forget the names of them. Uh, that's awesome. It's Python. In Python? Yeah, look dot py dot py dot py dot py i was right this is the repository of their software very cool see that you're right david that's there's there's all kind of files in there i know see, that's i mean these are readme files um, uh-huh the the commit files are python files right right exactly so there you go they just, use, they just use Python. I mean, 100 years ago, it would have been Fortran, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, punch cards 100 years ago. Huh? 100 years punch ago, cards. punch cards. Not 100, no. Well, you said 100 years ago, it would be Fortran. It's like, I don't know, maybe no, 50. No, no, no. 50 years ago. 50 years and ago, before Fortran. In the 60s, yeah, about 50 years ago, it would be Fortran. 20 years ago, it would have been C. <clears throat> now it's Python. Mm -hmm. The point is, it's a language. And so that's awesome that they that they, yeah. Here it is, here it is. That that's that's why you need uh, the research. Well, anyway. But I think it's awesome that it's just like oh, it's available. Yeah. You know. 
because we're changing we're changing people's lives and we're, we're going down this road and it's and it's just going to keep getting better and better oh look at this oh wait oh bummer they have a better than it's our thumbnail but it's even more intense wow that's cool oh here's the read me is this the oh no it's like the it's the introduction yeah well this has been a fascinating conversation don't you think oh yeah i love this stuff uh yeah uh, you know i was talking to a neighbor and he 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 was he's a physicist you know and he, he was telling me what he was studying now and i go that's really interesting and we were talking about it and uh i said you know a physicist really needs to be an artist and he goes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> it's not about the numbers. It's not about the paint. It's not about the sound of music. It's about what it creates. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the value added of humans. You can create beauty with almost anything, with sticks. And we got to keep doing it. And you know how we do it? By keep huh. talking. I'm playing the I'm playing the music, so you can say your line. We got to keep talking, David. Uh huh. Uh, communication is talking. Keep talking, but listen more than you talk, and try to learn what that other person is saying. We'll see you guys in the next episode. We'll see you later. Thanks a lot. Thanks, David. <laughs>